0: I'm Tim Richard.
1: And I'm Michelle Bolin.
0: And you're listening to the More Train Less Pain Podcast. More train less pain. Caving to listener pressure, Michelle and I sit down to talk again about PRI. This time with a focus on the practical, day-to-day applications, both in the weight room and physical therapy clinic. We chat about the relative utility of an asymmetrical movement lens, minor tweaks to common weight room exercises to improve both range of motion and fitness outcomes, whether or not a full exhalation is desired during resets, the stack, and oh, so much more. If you're a trainer or physio, either interested in postural restoration, or you've been exposed to some material and want to get further insight into how to apply it, then this is the episode for you. Before we get started, one comment and one disclaimer. The comment. If you haven't listened to our season one episode titled, What PRI Got Right, start there first, as that episode presents some foundational information that is built upon in this one. The disclaimer, neither Michelle nor myself are affiliated with or representatives of the Postural Restoration Institute in any way, shape, or form. We do not teach for, nor are we accredited by, the Institute. The informations and opinions that we share in this episode are ours and ours alone. Should not be taken as the position of the Institute and are intended for educational and entertainment purposes only. Let's get to the show!
1: Whether you are building strength or building back stronger, Anchor provides the portable space saving cable trainer that is powering athletes' training across the world of sports and performance. The company's newest product, the Anchor Pro, is assembled in the USA and delivers a professional-grade cable training experience at a fraction of the cost of a traditional cable machine. Visit ancoretraining.com and get 10% off your Anchor Pro order when you use the code MTLP at checkout. Anchor, train without limits. Welcome to today's episode with an exclusive with Tim Richard. No, I'm just kidding. So season two, we are going to kind of tackle practical PRI. So if you haven't listened to the season one episode about, what was the title of it? PRI something.
0: Um, do, 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 putting PR, uh, I don't know, but it's the PRI episode. It's like episode four. <laughs> it's episode four or five. It's really easy uh, to find. Perfect. Yeah.
1: It was probably one of our most downloaded episodes. So we were like, hey, we probably should tackle this episode again. In season one, we really tackled, you know, what the Postural Restoration Institute was, uh, what they have available, really encouraging people to go seek out the primary source information, which is the courses. And we really just expressed our gratitude for all the things that PRI has helped us learn and really gear our ideas towards training, biomechanics, and our career um, utilizing kind of the concepts of that really great school of thought course. And now we really want to dive into the ways in which we actually use the concepts and how we put these things into action. So we're going to really dive into three major kind of topics, which is how we use posture restoration institute what concepts ideas um, information and specific examples with that and then our overall ideas related to pri um uses and kind of just how we let it guide our decision making when it comes to training putting people in positions and programming and then the last one is what we really find useful and use on a day-to-day basis, and then failures in regards to things that we may have thought were useful in the past, and then we've kind of moved away since. So, Tim, you want to kind of kick off how you use PRI and uh, some specific examples?
0: Certainly. and But right before I do that, so the old PRI episode is Season 1, Episode 4. The title is What PRI Got Right? Um, And just a little disclaimer before we get going, and we said something similar at the start of the season one episode, but we are not representatives, accredited instructors, or accredited in any way by the Postural Restitution Institute. Any views that we express are ours and ours alone and are meant to be used for entertainment and educational purpose only. Um, Do not hate or sue us, Postural Restoration Institute. So, commentary. and and M- Michelle broached this, but the reason that we wanted to do another one of these episodes in season two is just because uh, far and away it was the episode that got the most engagement out of season one. So I think what that tells us is there's a lot of young physical therapists and trainers out there that are being exposed to PRI-ish information um, and either, and, and probably getting both, uh, you know, en- enraptured by it and inspired by it, but also kind of confused with it. So I think um, it was interesting when we looked over at the analytics of season one to see that that was that was one of the most engaged with episodes. So we felt that we owed our fans a uh, a redux in season two and a little bit more of an expansion of some concepts that we touched on in season one. So uh, I believe the prompt was, "How do I use PRI these days?" Yes, yes, yes. I, I would say from a from a one thousand foot kind of bird's eye view the concepts that I was, that I was exposed to with the Postural Restoration Institute inform some principles that I use in designing physical therapy exercises to reclaim range of motion, as well as making subtle alterations to activities in the weight room for my performance clients in order to, you know, pack on muscle, improve power, improve strength, those goals. So I think from a big picture standpoint, that is the, vo- that, that's the value proposition of this type of information is that you can choose better exercises to get people out of pain or reclaim range of motion, or you could be more effective in your strength and power interventions in the gym. What would, a big picture, what would, what would you say to that question, Michelle? Like, how do you feel like you use PRI?
1: So big picture, I think season one, I talked about in academics Exercise is really focused on physiology adaptations, you know, the big fitness bucket qualities such as strength, endurance, um, muscular endurance, blah, blah, blah. And PRI kind of really shine the light on movement adaptations and joint ranges of motion and how they can support your goal of reaching physiological adaptations. Yes, of course, the course information also includes a lot of points about physiology and the points about oxygen utilization and breathing mechanics, improving physiological concepts. Um, But I think it really just shined a light in like a huge macro view of targeting, not just physiological adaptations, um, but also movement adaptations as well. Outside of, you know, just typical making things look good, like a technique sense.
0: Yeah. And I, I think right from there, instead of having the traditional podcast or article structure of going from highly, highly general, very vague to very specific, I kind of right off the bat want to talk about like specifically how we use this information. Cause I know I'm the type of learner where like, I kind of like to see the application of it and then I can go backwards and, and, and get curious about the why. Um, but I think listening back to our season one episode, it's like things stayed, fairly theoretical for most of that exercise. So Mm -hmm. give me, give me one practical example, Michelle, of like in the past month, how you've used a PRI-ish concept to improve a a client outcome.
1: Perfect. Yeah. So a specific exercise first, and then I kind of want to talk about the three different kinds of situations or categories. I like use the information when we, zoom out again, but specifically if I'm having an individual do a split stance, so both feet flat, one foot behind the other, they're standing, and I want them to do a medicine ball side toss. Now using the principles of PRI, I could probably assume, and I could use, you know, testing assessments to kind of make sure that this is the case before I go ahead and make these decisions but I can assume that the person is going to have a little bit more trouble getting into the the left side of their body. It needs to be kind of pushed forward a little bit more on the right to turn left. And then the opposite would be true for the left side. So I can kind of manipulate that kind of concept with when the left foot is back, they're going to bring the med ball to the outside of their left hip And they're going to stand up as they toss the ball into the wall. On the left side, they keep their left foot flat and the foot stays on the ground. Now on the right side, I am going to step forward with the right foot as I release the ball into the wall, emphasizing that kind of push forward, push towards and turn towards your left side on that throw. So they're doing the same exercise side to side, but I just added like a little detailed change or a different cue from side to side to kind of reiterate being able to kind of push someone back to the left.
0: Yeah. I, I, I love that. And that's something like, I remember you told me about that maybe like a year and a half ago. And that's something I play with quite a bit because it to see people apply this information, it can get pretty goofy pretty quick where they're like yeah. doing all of an exercise on a left side. So I think, you know, I consider myself somewhat of a moderate, like our friend Lance Goyke, where it's like, I'm not intellectually secure enough to like only do one thing on one side. Like I, I at least need to equal repetitions, but making the right and the left uh, intent of the repetition slightly different, in my opinion, kind of scratches that itch of making sure that you're giving the right side what it needs, giving the left side what it needs.
1: Exactly, and it improves client communication as well because, the, of course, a client's gonna ask, "Why are you making me do something different side to side?" And I feel like that's a lot easier to communicate than only doing something on one side. You know, I get a, you'll get a lot of comments of like, "Well, won't that create an imbalance?" And then it kind of leads you towards a deep, dark rabbit hole that you probably don't want to go down. No,
0: that that, that <laughs> rabbit hole is not recommended. If you could avoid no. it, avoid it at all costs. <laughs> uh, I, I want to talk about something that Eric Huddleston mentioned when you had him on the podcast in season one, and I've just stolen the shit out of this concept. So uh, you guys were talking about your own programming and he mentioned that so you had a step-up exercise. I forget if it was ipsilateral or contralateral loaded. It doesn't particularly matter right now. Um, but with the left leg up on the step, when you stepped down, he wanted the right foot to graze the ground, but for you to stay in that left leg the entire time. So the right foot was just touching the ground and then you were, you were stepping right back up. On the right foot, he wanted you to step down, have the left foot fully come down, offload into the left foot, and then go back to the right foot. Mm-hmm. So sort of biasing, like if you want to think about that in the gate cycle, trying to keep you in left mid stance for as long as possible. Whereas on the right, we're sort of transitioning from early we're kind of transitioning backwards through the gate cycle actually. Um, but we're, we're getting off of that right leg and into the left. So both, both legs are doing a step up. I think he, he does you know, both with the same number of sets and repetitions. But on that right foot, you're getting a feel of transitioning to the left. And on the left foot, you're getting a feel of staying on the left.
1: Yes, absolutely. That was a great example by him.
0: Yeah, I I thought that was like that. That was really, really nifty. And even, you know, it's like in season one, we talked a lot about at what point does a thing become PRI or not become PRI. (laughs) And it's like, we can, we can just sort of say with, you know, he had observed, he knew your table tests, he had observed your movement profile. So you were just very quick to come off your left side and very Mm -hmm. slow to come off your right side. So it's just like, all right, well, let's bias the step ups on, on each side to feed into what we'd like to the ultimate outcome that we want in terms of the positioning and motor behavior of the right and left legs.
1: And that's a perfect example of combining and blending, you know, a physiological adaptation from a step-up loaded exercise. And then on top of that, he's targeting and concentrating a movement adaptation from side to side, which is brilliant.
0: Yeah, for sure. And uh, the other, and this is, this is a, a, again, like a, a gym application, but something I play around with, with myself and a lot of my clients, um. Maybe this is like a narrow type individual thing, but like I'm and maybe this is a we know too much about the human body, like we're too in our body all the time. But it's it's really, really easy for me to feel like kind of heaviness coming from like my like right abdomen. Like I feel like my center of mass is kind of like, you know, like right lower abdominal quadrant kind of Mm -hmm. kind of where the liver would be. Um, So if I'm doing something like lately, I've been loving a slightly front foot elevated reverse lunge as like as a lower body output exercise, because it's like a reverse lunge, but like a little bit more range of motion. Um, I'll load that with dumbbells. When my left foot is on the box, I have my right, right hand coming slightly forward, left hand coming slightly back. So like a little left hip shift, and that increases the sense of heaviness on my left leg, lets me get my foot contacts on that left foot and gives me a strong position to push from. When I'm on the right side, I do the same exact thing so it's it's right foot coming or right hand coming a little bit forward left hand coming a little bit back because i think on the right side what i need is to be is to be a little bit less heavy on that right side. So I can actually feel heaviness as I descend down into the movement. Mm-hmm. So regardless, if it's, regardless if it's right or left, I'm doing that same very subtle, like left lower trunk rotation. And this is something I've experimented with with clients as well, where, you know, we just got to the point where, Hey, it's, it's okay. If you need to do something a little asymmetrical and a little weird with your mid and upper thorax in order to get a good sensation of loading and utilization of each leg.
1: Yeah, I love that too. And I I think of a split squat with load placement as like the same exact um, kind of idea in terms of there's one person I have in particular where we do a split squat and they're holding the dumbbell in their right hand the whole time with both legs. It's the same kind of concept as that side toss that the right hand on the outside of the front right leg is going to allow them. I kind of cue them to kind of push their right hip like forward, like come out of the split squat at the top a little bit more like aggressively. So it kind of pushes that right hip forward and the load placement to the outside kind of helps that then when they switch to the left foot forward, that opposite arm hold kind of forces them to stay in that left hip a little bit more. And I don't cue, Hey, come aggressively out of that top position. So again, it's the, it's the same thing. We're, we're doing both sides, but these slight little cues and details, um, probably try to maximize the results as much as possible.
0: And this is probably a topic for a different episode, but the whole like ipsilateral versus contralateral loading when we're loading with dumbbells, I mean, that's, and, and just to give a little bite of what that discussion might sound like. I think when we talk about these ipsilateral or contralateral loaded things, which are commonly like split squats, I feel like split squats lend themselves really well to this or like a Camperini deadlift or a staggered stance deadlift. Um, the, it gets real weird, real quick. If you try to make these exercises heavy. So like these are best leveraged as something where you use like a 15 to 30 pound dumbbell on one side and it just changes center of mass just enough to elicit a slightly different feel and a slightly different adaptation. But for someone trying to do like... um you know, a split squat with a 75 pound kettlebell in one hand. It just, me and David Gray talked about this in the first episode of the season where it just, it becomes real goofy real quick where you just have to like, you're working so hard to maintain your center of mass over your feet that it becomes this odd core exercise, this like superficial compressive thing instead Mm -hmm. of actually like biasing one side of a, like one side of a pelvis, one side of a gait cycle, that kind of thing.
1: That's really good. So when I did my episode with Mike Camperini as well, we talked about, I asked him a question if, you know, if I was grabbing like very heavy weights, when I was trying to do a kickstand deadlift, um, would that ruin your intent? And he's, you know, he talked about that for a little bit, but I think we need to be a little bit, you need to be clear of like, if you're going for a physiological adaptation, again, like fitness, drive it, go for it do it, put people in good positions while doing it. But that's what it is versus like a movement adaptation where the weights are going to be light. And that's kind of like your clear intent with it. As soon as you start kind of taking these like lower intensity things that are really geared towards just solely positions and kind of targeting movement limitations and then you start putting like heavy loads on top that's where the water kind of gets a little dirty
0: yeah and it's funny me and David Gray talked about this exact same thing where it's like oh a separate- we should actually
1: we should actually listen to each other's podcasts <laughs> then
0: <laughs> No well just interesting to see what kind of through lines are already forming pretty early on in season two where it's like this separation of church and state like if you if your intent is to reclaim movement, let it be that. we're not progressing those things with load. And if your intent is adaptation or like, let's say strength or power, like more physiologic changes, let it be that that's fine. The second category is not the place where we want to be. I would argue it's not the place where we want, where we want to be applying a lot of these PRI concepts. Like it's, it's the place of more conventional strength and conditioning. We still need to appreciate position. Cause I don't think, um, arch as hard as you can in your squat is like good biomechanics at this point. And, you know, late 2021, but I think we, we start to talk more about respiration and gait in these exercises where the intent of the exercise is to reclaim movement, which could be something that a trainer prescribes to like an easy, easily irritable client. Um, where like they can't do a lot of heavy things without getting flared up, or maybe that client doesn't have enough movement options, or it's something that a physical therapist prescribes because someone's gone, you know, come to see them and, and they're in pain.
1: Yeah, breathing is a, a good hint for me. So if I can breathe throughout, like you said, I call it a loaded step deadlift. So the emphasis is on like the back leg hip of one foot's forward, one foot's back, going down into a hip hinge. If I can breathe throughout that movement like I'm good. I know I have an appropriate weight and sometimes the load and weight is actually going to help you get what you want to get. But as soon as I start holding my breath, or I can feel like the veins pop out of my neck, I'm like, Hey, I'm getting probably a little bit carried away here. But then there's days (laughs) where I do a trap bar kickstand deadlift, where again, I'm in a split stance and now the weight is focused on my left foot hip. And that's where I'm okay. Like I'm in a good position. I can maintain this position, but I can actually really load this position. And that's what my intent is. And now, okay, I'm going to go get it now.
0: Yeah. And that when you heavily load like a kickstand trap bar deadlift, you're typically loading that front leg. Right. I know we've talked about this before. Yeah. Yeah. Did you do you do you not want to call the Camperini deadlift because you're just sick of paying Mike Camperini royal royalties? (laughs) No, I just don't know where this like copyright came from. Like
1: (laughs) I, I, I neither does he, neither does he, he's just as confused. I have a video of me like in 2015 doing that and it's just like, it's just a split stance. That's all it is.
0: Yeah, for sure. I I don't think Campo was even born in 2015. (laughs) He's, he's I not knew that him back
1: then. You couldn't grow a beard. <laughs> uh,
0: okay. Uh, apropos to this, all this PRI stuff. What do you think is the next logical direction? Any more like any more purely practical, like, like training room floor takeaways?
1: Yeah. So I really put a lot of context on this. So I have like kind of three situations that I kind of pulled apart when I was really kind of thinking about this and all my clients that I have. And to be honest, there's three ways that I apply this information. So the first one is I have a PRI certified physical therapist um, who lives, you know, down the street we have a close relationship. And she actually gives me a lot of referrals, which I just absolutely love. And she's pretty clear about her boundaries. She wants to make people make sure, excuse me, people are getting fitness and working out but she would rather refer them out for that. And so she sends me, um, she sends them, excuse me, down the street with me. She sends over the specific exercises that she prescribed them and how she wants them to be doing them. And I say to myself, okay, like this physical therapist who knows what she's doing, has clearly outlined her assessment views, what she wants them to be doing. Okay. I don't really need to do my own assessment on this person. This person is giving me information. She wants me to kind of just provide layers to really target that and get them moving, get them up, get their endurance level up, um, give them some fitness. And I basically take things in the gym and make them look like the PRI exercises that she's prescribed. So for example, she prescribes someone in all four belly lifts. So that's kind of like a a bear position, knees right underneath the hips, hands right underneath the shoulders on the ground. And maybe she slides a pad underneath their left knee to kind of push their left hip back a little bit. And she's emphasizing kind of weight over the left side. I'm going to say, okay, what exercise can I create that kind of mimics this? And an example would be a prone dumbbell row, on a bench, and I again will do slight changes left to right. They're gonna row on both arms, but on both of them, they're we're gonna shift them to the left and get the left hip up, just like that all four belly lift that she prescribed, and we're gonna do the row in those positions. Then I also have really found that you know, not just placing someone in a position that's not going to be like too effective. How can I maximize this a little bit more? And I've been doing ISO holds before, and then they do the reps. So in the ISO hold position, they have to hold for like five to 10 seconds, and they have to find and feel the same muscles that this physical therapist has wanted them to really sense and feel and then it's okay. Okay. Do 10 reps on the dumbbell row. And so that has really sparked a lot of creativity from me because, you know, I have to make things in the gym that are going to build their fitness. And we, we try to do it in like a circuit like manner to keep their heart rate up, build some endurance and that will also help them improve in their rehabilitation because they can handle a lot more of these exercises and their body can handle a lot more demand on them. So that's like kind of one bucket I fall under. Do you have anything? No,
0: I, I, I'll, I'll say, I, I don't know if it was, I'm going to, I'm going to give, oh, by the way, you should, uh you should say your neighbor, neighbor PRI therapist's name, give her a little shout out.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. Please contact her if you have any uh, stuff. We'll put her contact information in the show notes. Donna Bear.
0: That's that's who I figured you were talking about. She's awesome. (laughs) Well,
1: there's only Uh, one female PRI certified physical therapist in the state of Massachusetts. So I should probably just be completely clear about that
0: very, very fair. No, it's funny. I I don't, I'll, like I said, I'll give you credit for this, but the, uh, the long ISO hold at the start of a set, when you're trying to teach people the position that you want them to hit at like at the end or at the, either at the start of the end of, of each repetition is so unbelievably money. Like it's not, if you're, if you're looking to get a lot of output out of an exercise, it's, it's not super useful for that. But I know when we were working together uh, and quarantined happened, like I hadn't had a good feeling RDL for a while. Like my left hip was just kind of like weird when I tried to do like a bilateral RDL. And you wrote me a program and it was like, it was, I think we started with a 20 second and progressed to a 60 second hold right at the start of each work set where I'm just like hanging out in the end of an RDL and I can kind of shift my hips. I can breathe. And I think going back to the breathing thing, it's like getting, having the ability to get a couple breaths in, in this new position that you're trying to reclaim, get a really good feeling of that. And then you rep it out from there. So unbelievably useful to teach people positions and get them, get them doing a movement in the right position to work the right pattern, work the right muscle.
1: Yeah, exactly. And especially if you are going after a movement adaptation, um, if you just make a position look like something else, it's really probably not that effective. You actually have to like own that position and kind of make sure it's mimicking. Like I mentioned that all four belly lift really, and then, okay, let's, let's do something.
0: Yeah. And even, so I got, um, I have Bill Hartman stuff top of mind. Cause I was just listening to Eric Huddleston on, on Joel's podcast. He was on there again, like, like episode dropped a couple of days ago. And this notion of like, you can, especially if you're someone with like a wide infrasternal angle angle with like narrow hips, wide shoulders, you're going to be really, really good at just kind of like briefly dropping down and kind of bouncing out of the bottoms of reps. It's the opposite problem of like the, the traffic cone person like me, that's going to be really good at just like settling down. <laughs> um, so I imagine like a lot of the crossfitters that I work with, they're really good with a deadlift at not actually loading anything. And like the last six inches of the movement is a, just a pure drop where then it's like a barbell bounce and they come back up. So having that type of individual do a hold like a millimeter off the ground where they're finding hamstrings, quads glutes appropriate back stabilization so that they know exactly what that bottom ought to feel like with what gets loaded. And it doesn't just become this like, all right, gravity, like let's bounce up off the ground. That's going to yield. And it might not be, it might not be beneficial from a CrossFit performance standpoint, but from like a health standpoint and oh, I actually feel my hamstrings doing the work standpoint. It's indispensable.
1: Yeah. And that's one of the biggest things that PRI has really given me a perspective on of like getting to know your body and finding and feeling spaces and parts of it and that's one of the biggest goals in my opinion of a, a successful intervention with that.
0: Yeah, very well said.
1: All right, so I'm going to keep talking. <laughs>
0: so this
1: the second situation that I find myself in which really was an eye-opening experience for me when I first started, you know, in the PRI rabbit hole. Um, when I started taking courses and got some information underneath my belt was I was dealing with groups at the time. So uh, a biggest big mistake that I and everyone has made this mistake <laughs> is just I threw people on the ground. And like my elite level athletes, like there was many people who were performing on the national stage, um were laying on the ground doing hip lifts in ninety ninety you know, lifts on the ground. And I wasn't doing my job. You know, I thought I put myself in the position where I thought I was doing the right thing, but I really wasn't. But anyways, in that group setting, I think some of the, the biggest thing that I've really extracted is creating large concepts to kind of scoop up low hanging fruit. And I know in the season one episode, I mentioned like the stack position, you know, keeping the head over the hips. And we kind of went back and forth about, is that actually a PRI thing? And I'm just like, yeah, since I re-listened to that, it is because I didn't have that thought before I got introduced to PRI and how that can relate to good exercise technique. And so in the group setting, Creating rules that you can follow as you program for large groups is the most useful thing. So we talked a little bit about this before, but doing instead of like the typical bilateral lifts, doing an offset position with the feet, so a split stance position, we talked about the kickstand or the loaded step position, I'm so sorry, campo deadlift position, and then, you know, an alternating grip variation or an alternating rep scheme. And those just three rules to follow in your programming can really clean up a lot of things that, you know, PRI kind of uses as a staple of maybe some movement issues. Um, so that's the second situation. You want to say anything about that?
0: Yeah. And the, this, this might be the most important minute or two of this podcast. Cause that's a really good, like you can just observe generalities that need to be true 99% of the time and do a much, much better job than nearly every other trainer and coach out there. So like you mentioned the stack position, I would say getting a left hip shift. I would say having an awareness of like these, the superficial compression strategies as like the Hartman folk call them, But like when we're doing a heavy trap bar deadlift, we want everything to be squeezing really hard. But then when we're doing something low level in the warm up or the cool down, that's not the place for like back muscles or hip flexors or six pack abs, rectus abdominis to be on. So getting an appreciation for, and you and I have talked about this before, like bookending hard training sessions with easy movement, where we start to free up more degrees of freedom, get more rotation back to the system, get more breathing, get more play. Um, I, I, think that's a really big thing and then uh, relative motion between segments. So this goes back to the left hip shift concept, but there's a, and I, I learned this the hard way working with Michelle and Campo, but like, there's a big difference between an authentic left hip shift where the left side of the pelvis moves backwards in space and nothing else really moves and just listing everything over to the left. So this gets to conceptually the difference between orientation and relative motion, which we talked about in season one. So I think learning to appreciate that most of the time, what we don't want is an orientation. Most of the time, at least when we're dealing with movement outcomes, we want relative motion. Um, The exception there being like if someone is in a crazy anterior pelvic orientation, anterior pelvic tilt, we probably do want a a posterior orientation to bring them back in space. But from there, it's about how do we alternate right and left? How do we restore relative motion? And then this is something that I, I uh, I would say came from you and only you but like having, having a more relaxed visual system or input during most exercises. I remember you came out with a, this was an Instagram post from like three or four years ago, but it was like, I, th- I think you were in some kind of a stance and it was like a seesaw of your pelvis and your thorax, but then your eyes remained level. And I think the caption was like, eyes, eyes level and on the horizon. And it's if you go in the weight room, like it's, it's amazing all the wonky things people will do with their head and eyes, probably to optimize force output or stabilize, like the stare up at the ceiling or stare down at the ground, where it's like the right answer, similar to what you were saying about breathing, the right answer with almost, almost every exercise is like, no, I should mainly just be on the horizon, like head and neck is relaxed and ready to respond to things
1: hmm Yeah, absolutely. Oh, wow. Look at you bringing up an IG from years ago. I love it.
0: That was, that was probably one of the, one of the reasons why I sought you out when I lived in Massachusetts. I remember looking at that, like, oh, like she's doing a weight room exercise. Like this is PRI concepts in a weight room exercise. I'm I, I could be into this.
1: So weird. Yeah. And I probably had just taken the visual course as well, which, you know, controls most of my thoughts following. Yeah. I, I I noticed that you just,
0: you know, you, you hang out in your red room when you need to have energetic thoughts yeah, and, then, exactly. and then you go to your blue room when it's time to calm down.
1: Yeah. I'm in my purple room right now. Um, okay, okay.
0: Okay. Bill Hartman.
1: <laughs> oh, so the third situation that I use this in is of course, like what you typically think of, like in a personal training situation where I'm dealing with someone individually, you assess, you put them in certain positions The emphasis is on position. That is the foundation of my exercise selection. It's, you know, if they're kind of pushed forward in their chest, how can I put them into a position that will open up their back and get some air in there? Um, And then retesting, which is obviously a big thing from PRI's perspective or more than PRI. So this is like, how can I address these things in a warm up? They're going to be a little bit lower intensity, probably body weight, or like you mentioned, like weights from like 15 to 30 pounds. Uh, An example I gave too is that med ball throw. It might be slightly different from a left to a right side. And then lifting, there's two kind of strategies I do. A pairing. So you kind of mentioned like if we're doing a heavy trap bar deadlift, Maybe they're doing an exercise that's a little bit lower intensity and really focus on a movement adaptation. So maybe I pair a physiological adaptation or intent exercise with a movement adaptation intent exercise, or all of their lifts really are kind of the blend of those two where we're not really going up a lot in in loading. And then conditioning you know, I really try to find something that they can repeat over and over again in specific uh, positions. So even just little things of choosing between uh, a compact bike doesn't have arm handles and then an Airdyne bike that has arm handles, I am going to choose that Airdyne 100% of the time because it drives rotation in the upper body. Nothing's better than that. And again, that's all really relating to the information that I've gained from PRI is getting that rotation. And honestly, those airdynes, people may dread intervals at the end of a training session, but sitting on an airdyne for five minutes can make you feel so much better when you get off that bike. It's insane. Um, or, you know, we can do intervals with uh, a lateral uh, stand side toss into the wall. We're shifting side to side. So I really try to include these principles even when it's conditioning stuff.
0: Yeah. I think w- with the, with, the, I, I think about the airdyne a lot and I, I use the airdyne for that exa- exact same purpose in my warm up. We've talked about sled dragging. Like that would be my other, I probably yes. prefer that more like backwards and lateral sled dragging, but just because of how much gross general thoracic frontal and transverse plane movement you can drive with that airdyne while the legs are doing a thing. Like it's both effective at I think improving movement options and then definitely just getting you warm. I will say I prefer a spin bike for, if we're trying to do a specific type of conditioning where it's like heart rate is being monitored. And, okay. and we're trying to keep things at a consistent output for a long period of time, like a lot of um, I don't know if you follow him at all, but Peter Atia, like a, he's a medical doctor who's like obsessed with getting people to live to be like 100, 110. Um, he's big in like the Tim Ferriss kind of Joe Rogan space, but he advocates a lot of this zone two aerobic training, which is okay. like the highest aerobic output that you can sustain without accumulating lactate. And he's all like, he's, you know, he's, he's all a, um, a doctor about it. Like he'll actually like prick his finger and take his lactate and stuff. But he, I know he likes the the stationary bike for that reason, but I think they're, they're both valuable training tools. The thing that I did want to ask you, cause I know, I know when we started working together, which at this point, that's like 2018, like that's, you know, you're, you're allowed to change how you do things. But I remember day one, you did have me like get up on a table. And I think you looked at, you know, like shoulder IRs and ERs, hip IRs and ERs. In 2021 and in 2022, like, are, are you still looking at table tests? Are, are you using that information?
1: You know, I'm really not. I've kind of turned my assessment. It really it. So I'm, I'm going to turn that back. Typical normal clients, I don't. I use the orientation session, which is our first session. To use things like split squat, I definitely do toe touch people, which I've kind of used a little bit more and, you know, a bilateral squat and some of their pressing movements to really gain a lot of information of of what I'm going to do next. I really have stopped laying general population clients um, taking their range of motion. However, there are people like you that are a little bit different because you specifically wanted to improve your movement adaptations and i don't get a lot of general population clients who that 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 that's their specific goal so if i have someone coming in who yes is very clear about that and especially who's as you know intelligent as you are in relation to being able to track those things over time and have that as your goal and your primary focus i will definitely do table tests
0: yeah i think that's just you know, I, I do both physical therapy and training and coaching and whatnot. And I, I intentionally kind of build up a wall between those services. Like when mm. I'm someone's physical therapist, I'm de- like I'm definitely using the table tests and we're doing like ABA testing. We're doing an intervention. We're seeing the change on the table, but when a person's we've talked about this before, like a great way to take a person out of the fun and out of the headspace of training is to like lay them on the ground and check their shoulder <laughs> internal rotation. Yeah. Yes. Like, that's not, I mean, I would even go as far as to say that even with like a more fragile client, you don't want every exercise they perform to be a thinking, feeling type exercise. You want to figure out like, is there like a dumb output thing that they can do? And that's why I've been, I've been loving things like a leg press or like a, like a seated box jump where it just doesn't have to be complex. They can just, you know, go, go try really hard. But I think that there's a lot of people that take, get again, again, getting back to the, the topic at hand, there's a lot of people, trainers specifically that, that take the. PRI foundational three and start table testing people because they they think they should, because that's mm-hmm. kind of what those courses espouse. And then 10 minutes, 15 minutes of their session is like table test, a left hip shift, table test. And that like, that really gets you very far away from fitness outcomes and the overall fitness experience that you're trying to cultivate.
1: Yeah. And uh, my episode with Campo, gosh, she's getting a serious plug on this episode, but he I asked him why he was doing a med ball slam to side toss as my last warm-up exercise. He's like, "Ah, to get your heart rate up, to get you ready to lift. And I was like, that's still an intelligent answer these days, people. Like, that is still okay. Like, and we're gonna have an episode where we talk about like the the pendulum kind of swing of information that like occurs between things, and we'll get a lot more detailed. But I, I really have found myself in this big pendulum swing where i'm i'm not sick of but just like biased towards my own view towards fitness of like i want to work hard i want to be challenged and i want the people who i work with to feel the same way and do the same things it's like i i understand you know the focus on movement adaptations but i don't want my sessions looking like treatment sessions and i've kind of divided, like you said, assessments, which kind of more implies interventions and treatment versus like testing, which implies like benchmarks. And so I really try to lean towards those benchmark, like measurements to track progress. And that's that's really just been like more fun for me um, and easier to communicate um, and being able to do what I want without you know, ruining people's expectations of what's going to be happening.
0: Yeah, like you, you'd be really, really proud. I was thinking of you as I as I wrote this, but the last client program that I wrote a couple of days ago, their cool down is doing five minutes of take a guess.
1: The, um. Oh gosh. Um. I don't know.
0: Soccer ball juggling.
1: Yes. So, The
0: former soccer player and, and really, really like an intelligent, high achieving lawyer who had, who's had some exposure to this PRI stuff and has actually gone fairly deep down the rabbit hole, like a little, like a little on the crazy side. Um, but he knows his body probably too well. And he's like, you know, when I'm juggling a soccer ball, like, I feel like I'm shifting into each hip really well. I feel like my back loosens up. I feel fun. I feel like I'm looking everywhere. I'm like, cool, let's use that. Like, I want you, I want you to feel that before you leave the weight room and go back to being you know, a stressed out lawyer. Exactly. I, don't, I, don't want the, I don't want the last thing you do to be squeeze everything as hard as you can as you try to get like a you know, 250 pound trap bar off the ground.
1: Yeah. It's a movement meditation. <laughs> like some of my clients, we will throw like a tennis ball back and forth to each other as we kind of do our last minute chatting before they leave.
0: I was listening. I, 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 another plug for Joel Smith. I, I think he does good with the just fly sports performance podcast. I, I like his whole oeuvre, but he was, he had a, uh, he had a guest on and they were talking about coaching youth athletes and they were talking about like the laugh test. And mm-hmm. if like, if, if it is dead silent as kids go through drills in the warm up that is an abject failure compared to like, if at minute eight in the warm up they're like giggling and like making a lot of noise. Cause that just means like you've elevated the energy that they have to bring to the practice. You've elevated the engagement. And I think I am fortunate enough. I still do some CrossFit coaching and like my warmups for the past two or three months has just been like, all right, what's going to make them like, have fun and kind of giggle and like chase, chase each other around, um, you know, while being mindful of COVID precautions, which is a separate, <laughs> separate topic, but there's, there, there's a lot to that versus like, we're going to get down on the fucking ground. We're going to do a left hip shift. We're going to follow yeah. it up with a 90, 90. And that like, there's a time and place for each.
1: Yes, absolutely. I think I go back to, and I'm solely really talking about in the realm of fitness professionals, in regards to PRI really exposed people and gave them knowledge towards overcoming limitations, movement limitations. I, however, I think people can get kind of stuck in that bucket and not realize, realizing that they should also work around limitations and focus on people's capabilities and what they can do and give them some fitness They just get so lost and frustrated and deep dive down. I have to solve this movement problem or range of motion. And it's like, well, one, what if you're never going to solve that problem? What are you giving them on the side or more of that's going to benefit them regardless if they ever get that shoulder range of motion back?
0: Yeah. I mean, I know like I've, I've, I've seen campo table test you. So I know your hip internal rotation is just about as bad as mine. So it's like, if, if you were, I mean, you have perfect ranges of motion because of how much you knew, know about movement and exercise, (laughs) but like if either you or I were to wait until we improved hip IR to 30, we never would have done all the cool things that we've done with our bodies. Like we never would have run miles as fast as we have, or lifted heavy weights or played sports. And it's like, these things always have to be taken in context which gets me to another thing about pri it's like the, the pri posits that the human organism is inherently asymmetrical and then the question is well what do we do about that and the best answer to that is nothing if you can
1: yeah no, like that, that's good yeah that,
0: that 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 would be ideal however if you're asymmetrical and that presents a problem where you can't get into positions or you're feeling pain this is where pri and related things like bill hartman stuff might come in but just being asymmetrical or maybe maybe just breathing in a non ideal way isn't a problem in and of itself it's only a problem if it's a problem or it's only a problem if you learn too much and you make it a problem
1: yeah exactly like um so i this goes along with like my personal bias like i know i have limitations and ranges of motion in most of my body, but it's, am I going to obsess about it and just totally focus on gaining all of those ranges of motions back? No, I don't feel like I have any pain or, or reason to do so. And I don't really think I have like the patience or focus for that either. Um, I remember someone saying, uh, you know, it's not a problem until it's a problem. Well, I remember, you know, Justin Moore started working with Mike Camperini because his knee finally was just like I can't do this anymore, and he decided you know he was going to try to try to fix that. And I just haven't had in that situation yet. And you kind of talked about like these patterns, like everyone's a left AIC pattern. It's just the degree in which you are kind of dived into that pattern. And if you are having symptoms related to that, okay, then there's an intervention that needs to occur. But other than that, you know, move some, move some weight and get some fitness.
0: Yeah. It's also like pain is a multifactorial phenomenon. So the amount to which you demonstrate one of these postural patterns is only a small fraction of what be, what might be making up your pain experience, so it's like if, and again, God, my Camperini getting a lot of shout out, but uh, Campo has this like pie chart model of pain when he's trying to explain to someone why they hurt. And it's like, you know, you make if you make a big circle, it's like maybe 30 or 40% is training habits and 20 or 30% is positioning. And maybe there's a lot of other things that might make up 10%. Even, even a perfect PRI therapist or someone that's gone through Bill Hartman's intensive is only looking to intervene on that movement system, on that posture system, and that might not be the dominant input into a pain experience. So even from a physical therapist standpoint or from an athlete that's constantly training in pain, there's a lot of other things that you should look at that might be easier levers or or more effective levers to pull.
1: It's so funny you bring this up. I I think this should be like our season two kind of summary episode because when Mike was on the podcast, he I asked him a question in regards to there's so many factors in someone's life that relates to pain as a symptom, you know, past experiences can relate to pain as a symptom. So, Why do we as movement professionals think that what we do is the only way that we can solve that move, uh, excuse me, that pain problem? No, we are just one point of intervention. And maybe if you give them some movement options, you can affect that pain symptom, but you can't fool yourself into thinking that that is the only source of intervention that is going to fix that pain issue. And that's why... To me, that's so important to keep in mind as a fitness professional in relation to working with limitations versus overcoming limitations in giving them things that they're capable of doing and pushing that realm, other than just solely focusing on their their shoulder range of motion.
0: Yeah, no, and I think back from like a training load standpoint, I think back to the conversation that we had with Lance Goike not too long ago, where- you know, he pretty much doesn't employ these reset techniques, these PRI exercises, unless he absolutely needs to. And he was talking about in relation to himself with a lot of these like team sport activities. He's like, look, my hips killed me when I would, when I would go to hockey practice six nights a week. But now that I just play hockey once a week, it's it's not a problem. So it's like, the, like, yeah, maybe there is an alternate universe where Lance could have gone to the horuska Clinic in Lincoln, Nebraska and gotten special glasses and gotten his bite looked at. And maybe that would have improved his ability to sustain practice six days a week by 20%. But the easiest thing that you could do was just like stop training like an asshole in the gym and play a little bit less hockey. And now he enjoys hockey more. And I think it's those, it's those elegant solutions that people don't like to gravitate towards. They like to, they like to try to layer on complexity on top of complexity because we like to fancy ourselves these hyper-intelligent problem solvers.
1: Yeah. And I think it's part of probably my journey of also being one of these people that are just hyper curious and need to figure everything out. But I I feel like I'm kind of swinging my pendulum to the opposite side and saying, yeah, like this PRI information and biomechanics is extremely useful. I think it's highly impacted my coaching and benefited the people that I've worked with, but I can't have it as my only tool in my toolbox.
0: Yeah, and I think that's the, I mean, look, that was the mistake I made as a young clinician was the failure to take this information and then put it in proper context with everything else that I already knew that worked fairly well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I feel like we've kind of hit, crushed, I should say, two of our biggest boxes, which is how we use it, specific examples, and then overall like practical ideas related to PRI. Now, maybe, and I feel like I'm going to get stumped on my own question, what are the, probably the most useful things or failures that you've had um, putting PRI information into practice?
0: Yeah, I, I wanted to approach this prompt from a rehab standpoint, because I feel like we haven't given physical therapists and rehab enough diligence during this conversation. Sure. Um, but in PRI, and again, like If you talk to the people that develop the source material of PRI, that's a different thing than if you learn from people that are like learning it secondhand or thirdhand. But from the people that I learned from, there was a big, big emphasis placed on full exhalation and like driving all of a person's air out when you're doing a low level breathing drill. And I think knowing what I know now, we need as full of an exhale as possible to get the rib cage to come down. But if we overdo that exhale, then we start to use like six pack muscles and external obliques, and that's going to hold the rib cage down during the inhale. And during an inhale is where we'd like to see all elements of the thorax and pelvis expand in all directions. So I think for a while I was over cueing the crap out of an exhale, make it longer, make it more forceful, drive air out. Um, to the detriment of my movement outcomes. Cause what that's really, really good at doing is what Zach couples refers to as downing the pump handle, like just, just teaching someone to bear down and crush all the air out of their chest. And I first noticed this, I think working with Lance, I sent him a picture of like a, um, on all fours row. He's like, dude, when you inhale, your sternum goes further back. And I'm like, Oh, but I'm like maintaining a zone of opposition. He's like, maybe, but you're not, you're not getting the normal motion everywhere else in your body. So it's like, and this is something you and I worked together when you were training me. It's like your abs don't need to be on right now. Like you would just poke me. You'd be like, you got to relax here. And now when I give it, I give a 90, 90 hip lift to like a lot of people that I work with in my own practice. And the cue is, I want you to exhale as fully as you can without your abs kicking on. And then I want you to inhale your low back into the ground. And that's a different breathing paradigm than what I was you know, taught with PRI six, seven years ago. Uh,
1: those are, those are awesome. Um, I would say, uh, I mean, this is kind of so cliche, but like the appreciation of com- complexity, it's, you know, we, we, f- we extract all of these important concepts from these schools of thought. Um, But if you listen again to the people who teach these courses and create these systems, you know, they can, someone can ask them a question and they can give ands or or buts about everything. And it's just so complex. The the ways people can be positioned um, quote unquote patterned or just their movement. And it's like, okay, try to extract some major concepts and principles from these systems. And it really will clean up a lot of the low-hanging fruit with the people that you work with. And then for really complex movement issues, I refer out now. I don't don't try to think that I'm a, a genius and that I can solve everyone's problems. I refer out, you know, I call you and set up someone appointment with you or, um, Campo is probably my other go-to person. Um, and have you guys really go down like the complexity realm. And then again, I take what I can from you guys explaining it to me. And then I try to apply the concepts in, in my scope of practice in my environment, which is the gym. Um, and just keeping in mind for people having kind of some self-compassion of, you know, do the best we can until we know better, Um, seeking out information, but then really knowing when to apply it and not just applying it in every scenario.
0: Yeah. I I like that quite a bit. I think for, for bonus, just because I really wanted to say this term, because it's a, it's a term of Lance's that I loved it when I read it, but uh, anterior pelvic tilt apologism. So like, (laughs) Like extension and having an anteriorly anteriorly oriented pelvis, Jesus, that's a mouthful, um, is not the end of the world. And a lot of times that's a posture that people adopt that run really fast or lift really heavy or do kind of awesome things. And if you were to overstate the importance of a lot of this foundational PRI information, your first step would be to try to take them out of that position that's robbing them of this immense power producing capacity. So like, we have to understand that while PRI and related strategies might be effective at at improving a person's movement variability, the things that might look like bad posture, bad positioning, right leg stance dominance, aren't always problems. Like sometimes they might even be helpful in a certain context.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And we also talked about on his episode, you know, making physiological adaptations, like improving that person's endurance, um, it can actually help them not get into that position so quickly and go there so quickly.
0: Well said, any, um... Ten,
1: I think we nailed this episode round two of pure. I feel like I could talk about this stuff for hours and hours.
0: Yeah, I don't think we got to like a fourth of what was on this Google Doc between us. <laughs> um, if you listened and you, you know, liked what we had to say or you have any questions about things that we discussed... Definitely when we, um, when we post this podcast, feel free to reach out on either my or Michelle's Instagrams. We would love to hear from you. I think the entire reason why we wanted to do this was the amount of feedback that we got from that season one episode. So happy to um, put information that you know, people are seeming to find valuable out into the stratosphere.
1: Yeah, thanks for listening, everyone.
0: Thank you for listening to the More Train, Less Pain podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. The more positive reviews we get, the easier it becomes for fine movement professionals like you to find us. And the more time Michelle and I can devote to bringing on high caliber guests and continuing to produce a high quality show. If you're still listening, that means you're pretty cool. And that likely means your friends are pretty cool too. We'd love for them to become fans of the show. Spread the injury prevention love and the biomechanical knowledge by sharing a screenshot of your favorite episode on Instagram. Be sure to tag at Dr. Michelle Bolin and at Tim Richart DPT when you do. Now get out there and go train.